Welcome to a very special post-Thanksgiving interview episode of Broadway Radio. My name is Matt Timonini. Today you will hear my conversation with the legendary actress and cabaret superstar Uta Lemper. Now, through December 5th, you are able to watch a stunning filmed performance of her one-woman play with music, Rendezvous with Marlena, online thanks to Club Coming. This show centers around a real-life conversation with Uta and the legendary German actress Marlena Dietrich. The conversation happened 30 years ago and explores the late actress's life, career, politics, and more, and it is a fascinating examination of one of the most complex and interesting figures in Hollywood history. We will, of course, have links to how you can watch the film in the show notes and on broadwayradio.com. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Uta Lemper. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for featuring this. <laughs> yeah, there is, uh, I think, just over what, a week and a half or so left of the streaming presentation of your show with Club Coming. And this is such an interesting uh, show because I, I watched it and it felt, it didn't feel like a concert. It felt like a one-woman show um, with all the theatricality added into it. So for people who don't understand um, your connection with Marlena Dietrich. Can you kind of explain the history of where this show comes from and your relationship with her? Well, the, the Rendezvous with Marlena is uh, originally uh, definitely a theater play with music. I wrote this play about two years ago and I performed it pretty much all over the place already in, in, in England and in Germany. The complete show is in German in Germany and <laughs> in, in, in Europe and, and a little bit here in the States too. And I was scheduled to do many of those uh, concerts or performances um, over this summer and over this fall. Of course, everything is uh, canceled sure. and uh, I have to wait until next year, 21 or even 22, uh, to pursue with the performances. But I thought it was a wonderful idea to actually try to grab the and put this onto film because of the subject. Marlene Dietrich, after all, was a Hollywood actress. Um, everything she sees is cinematic in the context of the old movie world, a little, not really black and white, but more the stylized movie world of the sure. 30s and 40s and 50s. And um, I wanted to... Um, try to to get this onto camera I, I thought if you would crawl into the into the person of Marlene Dietrich with a close-up of the camera you could maybe even get more out of it than you could do in a theater play because you get closer to the person uh, this the movie world is just an interesting wonderful tool to get up very closely to the soul of of the uh, main characters. So uh, I'm very happy with the result. It is a magical fusion between theater, cinema, and uh, live performance, music performance. And it really is such a hybrid. It has the elements of all of it. And uh, with the post-production, we were able to really put the magical touch of cinema on top of it with uh, documentary footage material to to overlay to the uh, direct live performance. Yes, Marlene Dietrich is a very big story. Um, obviously, it's a political story. It's a his- historical story of, of a great woman who was way ahead of her time, super progressive um, in the years when women were not allowed to have the last word there. She was emancipated and uh, uh completely courageous, uh, speaking her mind, uh, leveling with the man, uh, being sexually completely liberated, uh, 
bisexual and living a, a very open relationship with her husband and uh, and speaking up, uh, speaking up to the great literates from Hemingway to George Bernard Shaw to Remarque, uh, having uh, the great poets, composers, actors, producers, everyone uh, <laughs> of the time. And she uh, she was a good comrade to all these men, too. That's, you know, you can see she had uh, maybe the mind of a man more than of a woman of those years. She just was very opinionated, strong, and she was not afraid to speak, speak it out. Yeah. And so what this show kind of looks to chronicle and put on a stage and now a screen is a real life conversation that you had with her, what, uh, 40 plus years ago now. Um, when 30, you 33 years ago, 33. Okay. 33. Okay. I screwed up. I'm not good with math. I am terrible with math. So I apologize. Yeah. Yeah. So you were at the beginning of your career. Um, she was kind of, uh, getting fairly close to the end of her life, I think. And, mm -hmm. um, and you had this kind of remarkable conversation with her that all started because you kind of felt, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, um, a little uncomfortable with, uh, the comparisons that you were getting to her. Yes, it was the year 1987. I was in Paris. I was the Sally Boats and the Prohibition production of Cabaret. At the time, it was a, a successful a production, and um, I, I received the, the, the Moliere, the Theatre Award. Um, so suddenly the press was filled. It was it was extraordinary at this time, 1987, that a German woman, would, young woman, me, would make have a career and like a breakthrough in a foreign culture and country because we still very much lived under the shadow of the Cold War and the stigmatism of, of the German culture and all the destruction that the Nazis had put upon the world. So even the German language at the time was stigmatized, even though it is a gorgeous language, the language of the poets and the philosophers, yet it's all, everything seemed to sound like uh, Hitler and Goebbels' speeches at the mm -hmm. time. So it, was, it had lost all of his charm and all of its um, depths and, 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 and glory, the German language. So uh, for us actresses, it, it was difficult uh, in those years to even go abroad and to perform because it, it wasn't welcome. And uh, it, that was quite surprising to give the German, uh, the, the um, French theater award to a German woman, but it was in the tradition of these very few German women who had been loved by the foreign country. This was Marlene Dietrich. There was Romy Schneider. Also, she had a career in France mainly. But Marlene Dietrich, she had uh, definitely um, the respect of everyone. But this was also basically due to the fact that she was an American soldier in World War II and she fought mm -hmm. against Nazi Germany. But uh, nevertheless, at the time... And the newspapers were filled with a quote, the new Marlene. And I thought I was 24 years. How can I live up to this? And I didn't feel very much like her at all. I, I, I looked much more, you know, contemporary at the time, not stylized. I I was a bit more like, like a, a rock person in my, in my heart than the stylized <laughs> beauty symbol of a movie star. So uh, 
I've, I didn't feel uncomfortable, like in a sense of unflattered. I felt very flattered and honored uh, to be compared to a legend. But I thought, hmm, I can't find myself in, in these uh, comparisons. So anyway, I, I knew she was very much um, a recluse. She hadn't left the house for more than a decade, but she was very much aware of uh what was going on in the world. She read the newspapers, uh, looked at the TV, and she had heard about me, this young German. And um, and I wanted to write her a little letter to reach out to say how much I adored her and thank her for the inspiration, but also apologize for the comparisons. And a month <laughs> later, I couldn't believe it myself. I thought, you know, this was a, just... A letter, it would disappear uh, in the big mountain of letters she probably got at the time. But she found me. She called me back. She said, it's me, Marlene. Uta, I want to talk to you. And I couldn't believe it. I had moved to a little hotel. Um, the receptionist had given me a message paper and said, Madame Marlene Dietrich called. Please wait. Wow. She will call back. And there was her number. And I still have that message paper. That's actually okay, a piece yeah. of the movie. And that original message paper from 1987. And we had a three-hour telephone conversation. It was very much overwhelming. I was way too young to handle it, to ask the right questions and to to basically live up to the level of life experience that she exhibited in this phone call. I basically listened. It was more like a monologue here and there. I would dare to ask a question. And she literally just wanted to talk. Um, I, I do have um, the memory of melancholy, melancholy, Melancholy in French. Uh, she was there was a great bitterness and the sadness to her that that really I did remember, especially when it got to speaking about Germany, about her sorrow that she had lost her home, her, you know, the country of her upbringing, her education, her culture. And uh, her favorite poet, Rainer Maria Rilke, she definitely um quoted him a, a few times throughout the conversation. Hmm. And uh, she spoke about her daughter, the broken relationship with her daughter and uh, her movies, Billy Wilder. And, and you know, and she had this funny way of speaking with a cynical uh, talk. Well, I don't know what you want me to. She, there was this like broken voice in there and yet this huge magical aura she carried. I put every after the phone call, I did not call her back. I don't know why. For some reason, for years later, I, I didn't even realize that she actually had left the number uh, on this message paper. And when I saw it again a few years later, 1992, at this moment, I was the Lola and the Blue Angel in right. Berlin. And 10 days before our opening night, Marlena passed away in Paris. And as she had told me on the telephone, she wanted to be buried back in Berlin. She wanted to get home to her hometown, her upbringing, her mother, be buried next to her mother on the cemetery in Friedenau. She had told me this and she uh, then was brought back to Berlin. Um, I was there at her funeral in 1992. It, uh, and again, here comes the story again. Her big story is really the... Uh, the incredible, un unbearable, um, failed relationship with Germany. Germany 
did not welcome her back in 1960, 15 years after the war. She wanted to perform in Berlin and Baden-Baden, along with Bert Bacharach, who was a musical director. And she was not welcome. They said, Marlene, go home. They treated her as a traitor 15 years after the end of the uh -huh. war. And all the way through her life, until basically her death, the Germans could not make up with her. They couldn't forgive her that she, she had fought against Nazi Germany uh, alongside with the Americans, with the enemy. And that word traitor lingered all the way through the years of the Cold War until her death. Now that speaks its own story. If you look at this, if you look at someone who had taken the right side against the Nazis and, the, and, the, and that side was still supposed to be the side of the enemy at the time. So that is an unbelievable story, a pa very painful story sure. uh, to tell. And it must have felt um, so wrong. At one point she um, had said, I hated Hitler so much. It poisoned my body and it darkened my soul. And I would say wow. that it was an emotion that I could feel somehow in that phone call. I was altogether too young to even understand and fathom the immense tragedy that lies behind uh, this woman's fate. And the the your film uh, version of this conversation so beautifully kind of ties that as you said, melancholy and the emotions that she had when speaking about her home, but also some of that glamour and the um, stylization that you have from her history and her career in Hollywood. When you try to put down the words and the feelings of having spoken with her and tried to put it on paper, I don't know, did that happen shortly after is that something you just did when you started writing no. the play how did you try to recreate all of the not only the words but the feelings and the emotions uh, of that conversation um i wrote the play about two years ago it was inspired by a few scripts and theater plays that were offered to me uh, to play the part of marlene dietrich um in this in this play there's a play out there uh, about the love affair between Edith Piaf and marlene dietrich and i was not happy with the, uh, the scripts the theater plays it was uh, not researched very well the understanding of the persona was not deep enough uh, she was characterized as more like a stereotype uh, like an, an icon that often is also, um, um, you know, displayed by transvestites. And uh, because she was such a fashion icon, she was definitely flamboyant, sure. but uh, <laughs> she wasn't researched in a humane way. So I had spoken to these authors of these, uh, the screenplay and the two theater plays. And I said, you know, you, you guys have to do some research. This is not all what she's not just an image. She's a lot more than an image. And somehow they didn't understand. And then I said, I'm just going to write myself the play about Marlene Dietrich said, I want to tell, and I will tell this from my point of view, a post-war German, a Cold War German who grew up through the years, 60s, 70s, 80s uh, of the Cold War in Germany, who has my own, my, her own political background experience of these years of being a German, also living with, um, you know, the, the responsibility of being a post-war German with uh, the mark 
and the stigma, but also the inspiration to do better with the responsibility of all of this. And in the wake of my huge series of recordings of the music uh, written by the Jewish composer uh, throughout the Weimar time, uh, starting with the album Kurt Weil, Bertolt Brecht, and then the cabaret mm -hmm. songs. And there, there was uh, nine CDs I brought out throughout the 80s and 90s in the in the context of the music that was banned by the Nazis. So I have my own heritage that I deal with, and I think it. I thought it was the very nice continuation of her um, mission to take into my hands and to move into our time and bring it into the next millennium. So I decided to research a lot and bring in a little bit of my own um, memory and experience and uh, heart into the story based in inside that phone call. Now that phone call is basically a theatrical tool at the same time to put uh, this evening into the framework of Uta speaking with Malena. That means we start with this, uh, a woman that was born in 1901 and we span the story all the way until 2020. So th that's a lot of uh, history to cover, but it was <laughs> worth it. And it came out of the same source of this experience of being a German out there in this world and going through the chapters of history. So, uh, yeah, I didn't remember words from the phone call here and there. For example, that she said, oh, people don't know me. They don't know who I am. They know my my legs, my movies, my voice, but they don't know me. And she said she was always able to keep her private persona very apart from a public persona, from her image. And she said, I can only advise you to do the same thing or they will eat you up, those sharks. And uh, in those days, they didn't have the paparazzi. It's true. Uh, stardom <laughs> was able to be preserved in a more glamorous way. Nowadays, you the papers would try to take you down as, as much as they can. They would have done horrible things to her at the time if the paparazzi yeah. had existed in the 40s and 50s. But um, I do remember a few little uh, sentences and phrases and also the Rilke quotes, but I remember altogether more her voice, the way she carried in her voice her story and uh, and her diction. So, yes, and then I, being older is a mo most important thing. 33 years later, I am not as old as she was, but I'm more of an older woman to be able to crawl into that kind of pain and a journey, um, also the memories that she carried, um, uh, the sadness, uh, you know, I, I have children myself, the, the problem she had of being a mother, all of that is, is just more handy. I have it right there on my own plate of life. I just need sure. to grab it and then uh, channel it through her character. So I felt very good all these years later to actually live and channel her and uh, it's it is uh, in the beginning a conversation between her and me but then it really turns into her telling me she told me on the phone her story i make her tell me that story a lot of the things she didn't tell but i researched them that she she spoke in those funny anecdotes and interviews and so and so and then um and then I go back to my time. I hang up the phone and I continue the story uh, with, with a more contemporary edge to it. Yeah, it is a big meal, this film. Uh, it, it, there's a lot in there. And my favorite parts are always the parts about where we really get to the humanity of the of the story and the performance and the, per the person. The, like when she is in a little 
living room, Avenue de Montaigne, number 12. She doesn't leave the house. She lives in this hoarded little living room with books and newspapers, record players, vinyls. And she, by the way, she had one of my records. So I, I make it play oh, wow. at one moment in the show. Yeah. My first vinyl recording came out in 1987 in that year. And, uh, and, and she tells the story and takes her time and she hallucinates. She's a bit of an old person's delirium. And um, when she's telling the story, we superimpose, overimpose these little fragments of memories, faces, Jean Gabin, John Wayne, Edith Piaf, uh, her daughter, uh, fractions of movies, um, images, uh, things that that uh, that that basically demonstrate the delirium in her head, and and that works so well uh, in a cinematic way. Yeah, so, <laughs> when you think back at Dietrich's life and career. Is there one thing that you feel like you've learned the most from her, whether that's growing up as uh, a, a German performer or from the conversation that you had with her some 33 years ago or in researching her for um, this play or anything in between? Is there something that you've learned from her either as a performer or as a person uh, mm -hmm. that you think is most emblematic of who she was and how much she means to you and your life? I can't really say that I learned anything from her because I didn't really listen to her words for a long time until later on, until I had figured out a lot of things by myself and suddenly I see, oh, I can very hmm. much um, relate to Marlene Dietrich in that way. And that was, uh, for example, Whitby, she always leveled with a man. And she said, I'm a gentleman at heart, but think like a boss and act like a lady. And I do have to say that I was never like a submissive person. <laughs> you can ask my husband. <laughs> my husband. <laughs> they had their own struggles with me. It's a natural component. I think maybe it was of her character and it is of mine that, that I don't even think of, am I a woman or a man? I'm, I just exist in the way I, my heart tells me, and uh, yes, I'm in the body of a woman, but there is a lot more to this than just being characterized woman or man. So I have my vision, my my inspiration, my 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 sensitivity, my my power, my force, and my my fragility, all of that, and that's not necessarily gender related. And I think that's in a natural way she conceived her persona. And then on top of it, yes, you get this great woman of a body, a body of a woman. I mean, both in both ways. And you play with it out there, especially in show business. It's great to play with it and uh, to use it as a tool of seduction and to play and to dance with it. And the, the uh, you have your voice. And um, but you you don't play the role play of the society. And uh, I think that was a natural component to my life, too. Well, it, as we kind of wrap this up, I I'm so kind of struck by this film and i think that's the appropriate way uh to describe it but this piece and this film coming out now not only in the middle of a pandemic when i'm sure you had plenty of other thoughts of as to where and how you would be doing this show um right now but also with everything that's happened over the past few months uh, even few weeks here in the united states Marlena Dietrich is has such a history of of 
fighting for what she believed in and standing up to people and without putting too much of a domestic political tone over it. I was just as I was watching it, it just kind of felt like even though it wasn't about this time and about everything that we're experiencing um, in the world right now, it felt very appropriate um, for everything that we are living through and have lived through during 2020. Very much. I mean, our times are in, it's almost a revolutionary time. And it's so um, uh, unbelievable that in times of this pandemic of, of, of people being locked up, this movement, this civil rights movement was reborn again worldwide initiated to uh, really the one action of George Floyd. And then it just took off worldwide. You could see people in Paris and in South Africa, in Australia, in, in everywhere, the movement to fight one more time in a continuous way now for the liberation and, and civil rights and equality uh, against racism. And yes, always for women and the, 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 the women um, um, movement is, is has been, uh, I would say, uh, fueled again through the Trump years, and um, and uh, it continues on, and it needs to go much further. Um, and uh, yes, it, it is a the story of Dietrich somehow has many many components, uh, contemporary components. Absolutely, she she, uh, she was looking at the uh, aspects of nationalism and stupidity, populism, and uh, also looked at history to possibly not repeat itself again. And I just did an interview this morning with Germany, and of course, uh, the German journalist is asking me, "How do you feel about uh, what's going on in Germany at the time? The movement of the right wing party." They uh, bring out of their uh, basements the slogans that Hitler and Goebbels were uh, using to uh, uh, the racist slurs and anti-Semitic slurs and um, 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 and, uh, and and anti-immigration movements and uh, these strange uh, new times where people turn back into history in a reactionary way and become primitive again. Uh, don't use the, the the intelligence of our modern time uh, to to move on forward, but to to go backwards. So uh, yes, the movie is about all of that, and I and I sum it up at the very end when I say, "What is it? What she really wanted me to tell you today in our year in 2020 with her voice?" And you know, it finishes up with the song, "Where have all the flowers gone? When will we ever learn? When will we ever learn?" And and then the song by Bob Dylan, the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. And Marlene Dietrich sang the Pete Seeger song, Where Have All the Flowers Gone? She sang it at the UNICEF Gala in 1962 in Germany. The Germans didn't want to hear it. And she loved the song by Bob Dylan, um, the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. She sang it in different languages and in German, too. So there, there's a lot of contemporary um, importance to this film and we we it was originally just meant to be a live stream a one-time performance for a, a platform <laughs> a european platform and then i thought no i can't just throw it on to like an empty stage somewhere you know we couldn't uh, allow a stage crew this crew had to be limited to two people because of covid restrictions and it was um, then a very compromised performance in a kind of a cold room with no proper lighting and i was agonizing about this this is not right i'm not doing just to the story if I just perform this like a classical concert somewhere on an empty stage uh, with no mood and uh, story around it. So, and then I heard that my um, 
Uh, my, my friend Alan Cummings was starting this uh, live stream uh, club performances downtown. He has the Cummings Club in, in the East Village in Manhattan, lower Manhattan. And I contacted him. I said, let me see your club. Let me see how it looks. And it's a really completely hip, funky downtown club. Yeah. <laughs> so funky. It's unbelievable. But we were able to take everything out. Of course, the club is closed, was closed during COVID restrictions. And we converted it into a little a film studio and he has these um, um, frescoes on the walls um, very naughty frescoes they bring you back into Weimar time he has the whiskey bar there a little dumpy stage and uh, we used all aspects of the bar in a realistic way like a movie set yeah. and uh, and then uh, yes it has a lot of vibe to it it's real it has a bit of a fringe vibe to it but then we elevate it with the story that is told but it's very authentic and I'm very happy that uh, that we have that this is little uh, world coming together with I love Alan Cummings and it's kind of a perfect world to to fuse with what he stands for at the same time yeah I, I think that this is something that not only cabaret fans and theater fans and film fans and just music fans uh, in general but also history fans um, are really going to want to take advantage of to be able to uh, to stream this. So we will have all of the information on how you can stream um, Rendezvous with Marlena in the show notes when people can listen to this through December or can uh, watch it through December 5th. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this. It was a pleasure to speak with you and I'm uh, it was so impressed with the film and I hope that everyone else gets, gets an opportunity to see it too. Thank you very much and hopefully uh, we find another platform afterwards, maybe for a TV broadcast. That oh, would be, be a dream. That would be wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, have a wonderful rest of your yeah. week. Happy Thanksgiving and uh, hopefully we'll talk again in the future. Thank you so much. All Goodbye. Right. Bye-bye. Goodbye.